Section 10 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor. Part 2. The social functions of the Taylor home now became less frequent and finally ceased. Women looked upon the friendship of John Stuart Mill and Mrs. Taylor with some resentment and a slight tinge of jealousy. Men lifted an eyebrow and called it equivocal, to use a phrase of Clement Shorter. The plan of having a husband and also a lover is not entirely without precedent, said Disraeli in mock apology, and took snuff solemnly. Meantime, manuscripts were traveling back and forth between the East India House and the Taylors. John Stuart Mill was contributing essays to the magazines that made the thinkers think. He took a position opposed to his father, and maintained the vast importance of the sentiments and feelings in making up the sum of human lives. When Mill was mentioned, people asked, which one? The Carlyles, who at first were very proud of the acquaintanceship of Mill, dropped him. Then he dropped them. Years after, the genial Thomas, writing to his brother John, confirmed his opinion of Mill after Mill took up with that Taylor woman, says Thomas, you have lost nothing by missing the autobiography of Mill. I never read a more uninteresting book, nor should I say a sillier. James Mill protested vehemently against his son visiting at the Taylors, and even threatened the young man with the loss of his position, but John Stuart made no answer. The days John did not see Harriet, he wrote her a letter, and she wrote him one. To protect himself in his position, John now ceased to do any literary work or to write any personal letters at the office. While there, he attended to business and nothing else. In the early morning, he wrote or walked. Evenings, he devoted to Mrs. Taylor, either writing to her or for her, or else seeing her. On Saturday afternoons, they would usually go botanizing, for botany is purely a lover's invention. Old acquaintances who wanted to see Mill had to go to the East India House, and there they got just five minutes of his dignified presence. Dr. Bain complains, I could no longer get him to walk with me in the park. He had reduced life to a system, and the old friends were shelled and pigeonholed. When Mill was thirty, his salary was raised to five hundred pounds a year. His father died the same year, and his brothers and sisters discarded him. His literary fame had grown, and he was editor of the London Review. The pedantry of youth had disappeared. Practical business had sobered him and love had relieved him of his idolatry for books. Heart now meant more to him than art. His plea was for liberty, national and individual. The modesty, gentleness, and dignity of the man made his presence felt wherever he went. A contemporary said, His features were refined and regular, the nose straight and finely shaped, his lips thin and compressed, the face and body seemed to represent the inflexibility of the inner man. His whole aspect was one of high and noble achievements, invincible purpose, iron will, unflinching self-oblivion, a world's umpire. Mill felt that life was such a precious heritage that we should be jealous of every moment, so he shut himself in from every disturbing feature. All that he wrote he submitted to Mrs. Taylor. She corrected, amended, revised. She read for him, and spent long hours at the British Museum in research work, while he did the business of the East India Company. When his logic was published, in 1840, he had known Mrs. Taylor nine years. 
that she had a considerable hand in this comprehensive work, there is no doubt. The book placed Mill upon the very pinnacle of fame. John Morley declared him England's foremost thinker, a title to which Gladstone added the weight of his endorsement, a thing we would hardly expect from an ardent churchman, since Mill was always an avowed freethinker, and once declared in Gladstone's presence, I am one of the few men in England who have not abandoned their religious beliefs, because I never had any. Justin McCarthy says in his reminiscences, A wiser and more virtuous man than Mill I never knew nor expect to know. And yet, I have had the good fortune to know many wise and virtuous men. I never knew any man of really great intellect, who carried less of the ways of ordinary greatness about him. There is an added charm to the very shyness of his manner when one remembers how fearless he was, if the occasion called for fortitude or courage. After the publication of The Logic, Mill was too big a man for the public to lose sight of. He went his simple way, but to escape being pointed out, he kept from all crowds and public functions were to him taboo. When Mrs. Taylor gave birth to a baby girl, an obscure London newspaper printed, A Malthusian Warning to the East India Company, which no doubt reflected a certain phase of public interest, but Mill continued his serene way undisturbed. To this baby girl, Helen Taylor, Mill was always most devotedly attached. As she grew into childhood, he taught her botany, and people who wanted a glimpse of Mill were advised to look for him with a flaxen-haired little sprite of a girl any Saturday afternoon on Hampton Heath. Mr. Taylor died in July, 1849, and in April, 1851, Mrs. Taylor and Mill were quietly married. The announcement of the marriage sent a spasm over literary England and set the garrulous tongues a-wagging. George Mill, a brother of John Stewart, with unconscious humor placed himself on record thus. Mrs. Taylor was never to anybody else what she was to John. Bishop Spalding once wrote out this strange solemn emasculate proposition. Mill's autobiography contains proof that a soul with an infinite craving for God, not finding him, will worship anything, a woman, a memory. This almost makes one think that the good bishop was paraphrasing and reversing Voltaire's remark. When a woman no longer finds herself acceptable to man, she turns to God. What the world thought of Mill's wife is not vital. What he thought of her certainly was. I quote from the autobiography, which Edward Everett Hale calls two lives in one, written by one of them. Between the time of which I have now spoken and the present took place the most important events of my life. The first of these was my marriage to the lady whose incomparable worth had made her friendship the greatest source to me both of happiness and of improvement. For seven and a half years that blessing was mine, for seven and a half only. I can say nothing which could describe, even in the faintest manner, what that loss was and is. But because I know that she would have wished it, I endeavor to make the best of what life I have left, and to work on for her purposes with such diminished strength as can be derived from the thoughts of her, and communion with her memory. When two persons have thoughts and speculations completely in common, when all subjects of intellectual and moral interest are discussed between them in daily life, and probed to much greater depths than are usually or conveniently sounded in writings intended for general readers, when they set out from the same principles, and arrive at their conclusions by processes pursued jointly, it is of little consequence, in respect to the question of originality, which of them holds the pen. The one who contributes the least to the composition may contribute most of the thought. 
The writings which result are the joint product of both, and it must often be impossible to disentangle the respective parts, and affirm that this belongs to one and that to the other. In this wide sense, not only during the years of our married life, but during many of the years of confidential friendship which preceded, all my published writings were as much her work as mine, her share in them constantly increasing as years advanced. But in certain cases, what belongs to her can be distinguished and specially identified. Over and above the general influence which her mind had over mine, the most valuable ideas and features in these joint productions, those which have been most fruitful of important results, and which have contributed most to the success and reputation of the works themselves, originated with her, were emanations from her mind, my part of them being no greater than in any of the thoughts which I found in previous writings, and made my own only by incorporating them with my own system of thought. During the greater part of my literary life, I have performed the office in relation to her, which from a rather early period I considered as a most useful part that I was qualified to take in the domain of thought, that of an interpreter of original thinkers, and mediator between them and the public. Thus prepared, it will easily be believed that when I came into close intellectual communion with a person of the most eminent faculties, whose genius, as it grew and unfolded itself in thought, continually struck out truths far in advance of me, but in which I could not, as I had done in those others, detect any mixture of error, the greatest part of my mental growth consisted in the assimilation of those truths, and the most valuable part of my intellectual work was in building the bridges and clearing the paths which connected them with my general system of thought. The steps in my mental growth for which I was indebted to her were far from being those which a person wholly uninformed on the subject would probably suspect. It might be supposed, for instance, that my strong convictions on the complete equality in all legal, political, social, and domestic relations which ought to exist between men and women may have been adopted or learned from her. This was so far from being the fact that those convictions were among the earliest results of the application of my mind to political subjects, and the strength with which I held them was, as I believe, more than anything else, the originating cause of the interest she felt in me. What is true is, that until I knew her, the opinion was in my mind little more than an abstract principle. I saw no more reason why women should be held in legal subjection to other people than why men should. I was certain that their interests required fully as much protection as those of men, and were quite as little likely to obtain it without an equal voice in making the laws by which they were to be bound. But that perception of the vast practical bearings of women's disabilities, which found expression in the book on the subjection of women, was acquired mainly through her teaching. But for her rare knowledge of human nature and comprehension of moral and social influences, though I doubtless should have held my present opinions, I should surely have had a very insufficient perception of the mode in which the consequences of the inferior position of women intertwine themselves with all the evils of existing society and with all the difficulties of human improvement. I am indeed painfully conscious of how much of her best thoughts on the subject I have failed to reproduce, and how greatly that little treatise falls short of what would have been if she had put on paper her entire mind on the question, or had lived to devise and improve as she certainly would have done, my imperfect statement of the case. The first of my books, in which her share was conspicuous, was The Principles of Political Economy. The system of logic owed little to her except in the minute matters of composition, in which respect my writings both great and small have largely benefited by her accurate and clear-sighted criticism. 
the chapter of the political economy, which has had a greater influence on opinion than all the rest, that on the probable future of the laboring classes, is entirely due to her. In the first draft of the book, that chapter did not exist. She pointed out the need of a chapter, and the extreme imperfection of the book without it. She was the cause of my writing it, and the more general part of the chapter, the statement and discussion of the two opposite theories respecting the proper condition of the laboring classes, was wholly an exposition of her thoughts, often in words taken from her own lips. The purely scientific part of the political economy I did not learn from her, but it was chiefly her influence that gave to the book that general tone by which it is distinguished from all previous expositions of political economy that had any pretension to being scientific, and which has made it so useful to conciliating minds which those previous expositions had repelled. What was abstract and purely scientific was generally mine. The properly human element came from her. In all that concerned the application of philosophy to the exigencies of human society and progress, I was her pupil, alike in boldness of speculation and cautiousness of practical judgment. For on the one hand, I was much more courageous and far-sighted than without her I should have been, in anticipation of an order of things to come, in which many of the limited generalizations now so often confounded with universal principles will cease to be applicable. Those parts of my writings, and especially of the political economy, which contemplate possibilities in the future such as, when affirmed by socialists, have in general been fiercely denied by political economists, would, but for her, either have been absent, or the suggestions would have been made much more timidly, and in a more qualified form. But while she thus rendered me bolder in speculation on human affairs, her practical turn of mind, and her almost unerring estimate of practical obstacles, repressed in me all tendencies that were really visionary. Her mind invested all ideas in a concrete shape, and formed itself a conception of how they would actually work, and her knowledge of the existing feelings and conduct of mankind was so seldom at fault that the weak point in any unworkable suggestion seldom escaped her. During the two years which immediately preceded the cessation of my official life, my wife and I were working together at the Liberty. I had first planned and written it as a short essay in 1854. None of my writings had been either so carefully composed or so sedulously corrected as this. After it had been written as usual, twice over, we kept it by us, bringing it out from time to time, and going through it de novo, reading, weighing, and criticizing every sentence. Its final revision was to have been a work of the winter of 1858 and 59, the first after my retirement, which we had arranged to pass in the south of Europe. That hope, and every other, were frustrated by the most unexpected and bitter calamity of her death. At Avignon, on a way to Montpellier, from a sudden attack of pulmonary congestion. Since then I have sought for such alleviation as my state admitted of, by the mode of life which most enabled me to feel her still near me. I bought a cottage as close as possible to the place where she is buried, and there her daughter, my fellow sufferer and now my chief comfort, and I live constantly during a great portion of the year. My objects in life are solely those which were hers, my pursuits and occupations, those in which she shared or sympathized, which are indissolubly associated with her. Her memory is to me a religion, and her approbation the standard by which, summing up as it does all worthiness, I endeavor to regulate my life. After my irreparable loss, one of my earliest cares was to print and publish the treatise, so much of which 
was a work of her whom I had lost, and consecrated to her memory. I have made no alterations or additions to it, nor shall I ever, though at once the last touch of her hand, no substitute for that touch shall ever be attempted by mine. The liberty was more directly and literally our joint production than anything else which bears my name, for there was not a sentence of it which was not several times gone through by us together, turned over in many ways, and carefully weeded of any faults, either in thought or expression, that we detected in it. It is in consequence of this that, although it never underwent her final revision, it far surpasses, as a mere specimen of composition, anything which has proceeded from me, either before or since. With regard to the thoughts, it is difficult to identify any particular part or element as being more hers than all the rest. The whole mood of thinking, of which the book was the expression, was emphatically hers. But I also was so thoroughly imbued with it that the same thoughts naturally occurred to us both. That I was thus penetrated with it, however, I owe in a great degree to her. There was a moment in my mental progress when I might easily have fallen into a tendency towards over-government, both social and political, as there was also a moment when, by reaction from a contrary excess, I might have become a less thorough radical and democrat than I am. In both these points, as in many others, she benefited me as much by keeping me right where I was right, as by leading me to new truths, and ridding me of errors. Mrs. Mill died suddenly, at Avignon, France, while on a journey with Mr. Mill, there she was buried. The stricken husband and daughter rented a cottage in the village to be near the grave of the beloved dead. They intended to remain only a few weeks, but after a year they concluded they could never be content to go away and leave the spot consecrated by her death. Unlike Robert Browning, who left Florence forever on the death of his wife, not having the inclination or the fortitude even to visit her grave. Mill finally bought the Avignon cottage, refitted it, brought over from England all his books and intimate belongings, and Avignon was his home for fifteen years, the rest of his life. Mill always referred to Helen Taylor as my wife's daughter, and the daughter called him Pater. The love between these two was most tender and beautiful. The man could surely never have survived the shock of his wife's death had it not been for Helen. She it was who fitted up the cottage and went to England bringing over his books, manuscripts, and papers, luring him on to live by many little devices of her ready wit. She built a portico all around the cottage, and in winter this was enclosed in glass. Helen called it Father's Semi-Circumgyratory, and if he failed to pace his portico forty times backward and forward each forenoon, she would take him gently by the arm and firmly insist that he should fill the prescription. They resumed their studies of botany, and Helen organized classes which went with them on their little excursions. In 1865, Mill was induced to stand for Parliament for Westminster. The move was made by London friends in the hope of winning him back to England. He agreed to the proposition on condition that he should not be called upon to canvass for votes or take any part in the campaign. He was elected by a safe majority and proved a power for good in the House of Commons. The Speaker once remarked, The presence of Mr. Mill in this body, I perceive, has elevated the tone of debate. This sounds like the remark of Wendell Phillips when dogmatism was hot on the heels of the Sage of Concord. If Emerson goes to hell, his presence there will surely change the climate. Yet when Mill ran for re-election, he was defeated, it having leaked out that he was an infidel 
since he upheld Charles Bradlaugh in his position that the affirmation of a man who does not believe in the Bible should be accepted as freely as the oath of one who does. In passing, it is worthwhile to note that the courts of Christendom have now accepted the view of Bradlaugh and of Mill on this point. The best resume of Mill's philosophy is to be found in Taine's English literature, a fact to which Mill himself attested. The dedication of On Liberty, printed as a preface to this little journey, rivals in worth the wonderful little classic of Ernest Renan to his sister Henriette. Mill died at Avignon in 1873, his last days soothed by the tender ministrations of the daughter Helen. His body, according to his wish, was buried in his wife's grave, and so the dust of the lovers lies mingled. End of section 10